Hello and welcome to the Modes of Mouth podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. This week we're joined by a guest who you might not have heard of before, but nevertheless has some incredibly interesting stories to tell. Oliver Weingarten spent a few years working in Formula One under Bernie Eccleston, liaising with all the teams as the founder of FOTA, the Formula One Teams Association. He talks about his time in F1 and what he's gone on to since, including Formula E, virtual reality, and his newest ventures in the ever-rising world of esports. Welcome to the latest episode of our Gearing Up series, where we take a departure from the likes of Coulthard, Crofty, and Connor Daly, and shine a light on those who might be slightly more behind the scenes, but make no less of an impact on our sport. However, before I introduce today's guest, I need to head, as always, over to Essex to introduce my co-host, and usually I'd reel off some incredible Essex-based facts to bring him in. However, today is a dark day. I have officially used up every single interesting Essex fact in existence. There are none left. I've done them all. Therefore, with no Essex joy, no fanfare, Harry Benjamin, how are you? I'm good. I mean, that's sad, really, isn't it? You really have used up all of the Essex fanfare. That is quite quite depressing. But yeah. um, we'll just end it there, then, shall we? I just end we'll it and go. It home. Yeah, it's, we'll it's, it, it is depressing. There. When we did yeah. um, the we when you were poorly and Charlie Martin stood in for you. Yes. Um, I, she lives in Leicestershire, so I managed to um, get one last fact in before this dark day <laughs> came knocking well, on our door. It's nice to be back. Thank you very much for Charlie for filling in for me. I I did not have anything too serious. I think it was it was man flu more than yeah, anything um so uh so yeah but it's good to be back on the podcast it's nice to have you back um right shall i introduce today's guest yeah let's do it so oliver or ollie weingarten is a father lawyer advisor businessman and founder He's held senior positions and pivotal positions at the Premier League and was Secretary General of the Formula One Teams Association, or FOTA, as some of you will know it. He's worked in collaboration with the FIA and FOM to shape the direction of the sport we all love, including the famous Concord Agreement. He later became General Secretary in Formula E. It's a pleasure to have him here to deep dive into the inner workings of top-level motorsport. Ollie, welcome to the Motormouth Podcast. Hello, gentlemen. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure, Ollie. Where's the round of applause? It's there. You just can't hear it in your your weird setup. But I hope it's. I didn't realize I have to do it myself, do I, for me? Yeah. I can hear it. There we go. Maybe it didn't show up, but anyway, we'll find out. We'll do do it in the post edit. Ollie, round of applause. Imagine that. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Harry, Um, before you you dive into your first question, can I just make sure I didn't butcher Ollie's name? How do you say your surname? Weingarten. Weingarten. Oh, I think I got it. Yeah. Okay. They did well. Yeah. They did well. It did well. Well, this has been an absolutely chaotic start to the podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ollie, welcome. Firstly, how are you? How's life been in 2020? You know, it's been a nightmare for everybody, but how have you navigated your way through it? It's been interesting, mm. to say the least. I'm like, well, I've got young kids. Uh, I've got missus as well. We're, we're healthy, thankfully. I think it's been an interesting time for the kids. You know, they've from a mental health perspective it's been a challenge what my boy went back to school and within two days was sent home to self-isolate for two weeks because someone in the other class oh. had got COVID symptoms and it could have been avoided because the mum selfishly sent her daughter into two years so that that's not great but you know, I think schooling for them is great um, he misses watching 
football in Stadia. He's really become quite uh, a football addict, quite honestly. And when he's not uh, watching football, he wants to play FIFA, or he wants to kick a ball around in the girls. Oh, it's great. You know, we live in a countryside-ish sort of area. We, we can't complain. Business-wise, it's been a challenge, though, yeah. but I don't think that's any different to a lot of people you speak to. Yeah, completely. It's been such a challenging year on both aspects, really. You've got to remember the mental health things. Well, it's so good that, you know, schools are back out and, you know, just sort of, and I suppose workplaces as well, it depends, doesn't it? But just to be able to get out of the house and almost have sort of a sense of purpose again is quite, it's quite nice. Um, but let's go back pre-COVID, pre all this horribleness of 2020, back to the very beginning, Ollie, and, and sort of about you and, and where did you grow up and how did um, motorsport come into your life and, and sport in general from an early age? Was, there, was it always about what sort of bit you to, to go down that, that path? I think as a youngster growing up in Glasgow, uh, you were either Rangers or Celtic and yeah. I was taken to a Rangers game by my late grandpa. So that Rangers became a way of life for me. Um, motorsport was a way of life because my dad, and not many people know this, is a Brazilian. He's from Sao Paulo. Ah, oh, wow. And uh, married a Scottish lady, and I end up in Glasgow as opposed to in the Copacabana. Guess who got the short straw? <laughs> um, what a mix. But, uh, as they say, Ayrton Senna, obviously, was a household name. And, uh, you know, we would watch Murray Walker uh, commentating and Formula One religiously. And then, you know, Scotland's got a great heritage of motorsport drivers from Jackie to... Dario, Dario and David Coulthard. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, think, yeah you, 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 you are missing. You're missing one. Oh, one. here we go. Uh, I believe we pulled the rest oh, of as well. Oh, no, I like Paul. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we love, Paul. love Paul. It was a non-exhaustive list, Harry. <laughs> Thing Come is, on, man. Harry doesn't just like Paul DeResta. Harry, you kind of want to be Paul DeResta, don't you? Can you see? <laughs> I can't see it. There's a, that's, that's a Paul DeResta car there. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sort of there. Can't really see it. But there you go. So, I'm, a, I'm number one fan. <coughs> Literally. So I grew up, I grew up with uh, sport in my house. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I went to university, I, I went to Long German. I always knew I wanted to be a sports lawyer and a football agent. And to cut a long story short, um, I trained as a lawyer and came out the other end that it was like, what am I going to do? And I had two options. One was stay in the law firm and be a corporate lawyer and earn a shitload of money. And I decided, actually, I didn't want to be a corporate lawyer, so that didn't really entice me. So I thought, I'm going to go into industry. And it was go and be a football agent and work with a guy called Jerome Anderson, who people in the sports industry would have heard of, or um, you know, go and find another job. And I saw an advert in the Law Society Gazette for the Premier League, and it was called Legal Services Exec. And I never had a clue what that was, but I thought, Christ, it's the Premier League. It's my dream job. I'm going to go for it. Um, and sack off being a football agent and a commentator and all those other dreams that I've had. This is what a young lawyer wants to do. He wanted that loves football. And I applied and I spent seven years at the Premier League as uh, the general counsel in commercial and IP. And it was a fascinating role. And I can tell you the first few days I bounced in. Um, it was so much excitement. I didn't quite bounce out. It was so much excitement <laughs> after seven years. It became a bit like Groundhog Day, but it was a fascinating environment to um, to really grow my career, my network, um, my skill set. I did so many fascinating things um, from suing YouTube in the US. You're taking naughty publicans watching uh, or, or broadcasting, you know, illegal streams from foreign Dakota cards to. Um, you know, presenting at the European Commission and lobbying and legislation and selling media rights and doing sponsorship agreements. So I, 
I went with um, now the current chief executive to Masters, but we went to do the Wrigley's chewing gum deal. And as we got to, I think it was Portsmouth or somewhere like that, as we got there, his wife went into labor and he had to shoot back. But essentially left me as this young kid, really quite young at the time, to close off the Wrigley chewing gum deal. It was only about a million quid a year, but it was like fascinating experience. So... That, that, that was the dream job. And then, you know, jump ahead. I then went into Formula One, Formula E, Sports yeah. Tech and Esports. Do, do you think that um, those seven years in the Premier League, because of those those sort of scenarios that you found yourself in, do you think that gave you a bit of a fast track to where you were going? Do you feel like that sped up your career? In, in some ways, yes. But I think, like, don't want to be self-congratulatory, but... I had a lot of autonomy and I forged a lot of paths at the Premier League that they probably would never have gone down if I hadn't been there. Like the Premier League suing YouTube in New York. Like, like say it out loud. Yeah. It doesn't not. sound right, does it? Yeah. But actually, if you if you reel it back a bit and think, well, what is the Premier League's lifeblood? It's broadcast revenue. And YouTube were nicking content and putting it out there to the detriment of other rights owners. It does start to make sense. And you've got future rights revenues that have got to be protected as well. And the value always had to go up. So actually a lot of that does make sense. So, you know, I put together a coalition of international sports bodies, 40 international sports governing bodies to work on issues like ticket touting and intellectual property. Cause it couldn't always be the premier league knocking on politicians doors. Yeah. That, that may not have happened if I hadn't been there. So what I did was I had a lot of autonomy. I obviously performed well in the job, but I also forged a lot of paths, which stood me in, in good stead. And, like Premier League in your CV is going to be helpful wherever you go, let's Absolutely. be honest. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And fast forward a few years, you land yourself the role of Secretary Secretary General at FOTA. So how, yeah. did, how did that opportunity come about? And was motorsport something that you thought, that's something I want to get into, a bit like with the football, or, or was it a bit by accident? It was a bit by accident. And actually, uh, it lasted three years by accident. I, um, <laughs> I got a call from a headhunter. And to this day, I still don't know who recommended me to this headhunter. But it was, we've got this job. It's in Geneva. It's Formula One Teams Association. Would you be interested in interviewing for it? And I was like, well, I don't really want to move to Geneva. Uh, it sounds like it's just going to be full of politics and it's Bernie. And I obviously knew Bernie because... I worked in, in the coalition I put together. I brought form in there. So I was very close to someone that worked with Bernie. So I heard a lot of stories. Um, and I said, well, what's the harm that I'm coming? I mean, I've hit a glass ceiling at the Premier League. I've been there seven years. Um, Scudamore isn't going to change the, the senior management team at any, any time soon. He's not going to pay me more money. So actually, well, what's the harm in doing it? So um, I went to uh, walking to the MTC, to McLaren Technology Centre, to meet Martin Whitmarsh, who was the chairman of FOTA, and I mean, you had the VIP entrance, so immediately you're like bamboozled. Yeah. If you haven't been there, you've seen images, I'm sure, and it's incredible. Yeah. And uh, you walk past just the, the, the array of, it's just nostalgia, isn't yeah. it, when you walk yeah. in? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and I met the, the director of HR for um, McLaren, and he, and he warned, Patrick warned me, and he said, you know, Martin likes to talk a lot. And I went in to meet Martin at two in the afternoon, and I came out at seven in the evening with a hundred missed calls from my wife. Like, where are you? Have you been in an accident? Just been on the M25. Are you okay? Yeah, I've just oh, been sensei. I've been whitmarshed. It was just I've been whitmarshed. And I think he only asked me two questions the whole interview. But what he did was he sold me Fota. And, and this is brilliant. This is just Martin to T. And 
halfway through the interview, he picks up the phone to Eric Boulier, the vice chairman of Photo, and goes, Eric, I think we found our man. <laughs> You're like, uh, okay, okay. Great. How, how soon can you see him? Tomorrow, okay. <laughs> Oliver, can you go to Enstone tomorrow? Um, but Martin sold me um, like, the opportunity. I, 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 he did. He asked me a couple of questions. Like The most challenging one was, why are you leaving the Premier League now? You're taking a big risk, aren't mm. you? But, yeah. So, so exactly. Well, can you explain? Yeah. So, can you explain what exactly the Formula One Teams Association was? Yeah. Well, Bernie would call it a union. I would call it a, a coalition of the teams trying to work together to further benefit and grow the sport. And that's everything I did. I had it at the. If you think of a circle, right at the, the pit of the circle was how can we benefit the sport? How can we grow the sport? Because actually what Bernie was doing in some respects was, yeah, the revenues were fantastic, but you know he was stagnating the sport a lot. He didn't believe in social media. He was getting data from the teams exclusively under the Concord Agreement, but he wouldn't license it back to let them utilize it, even though he wasn't using it. So ultimately, FOTA was a coalition. It was um, an organization of the teams. They were all members. They had a secretary general. I had an office. Uh, they paid me and the staff. I went to races. I represented them in issues. We did fans forums, which they got involved in. We did other projects. But as a trade body, union, however you want to describe it, it certainly shouldn't have the negative connotations other than maybe from before my time when there were the quick threats, you know, about Mm. starting up on their own. But that wasn't, that never happened in my time. And did you get on with the rights holder? Was there clashes there? How did Bernie take it? Well, the, the first meeting I had with him, so I, I got appointed at Monza in 2011. Uh, that was the first race I went to, and uh, funnily enough, got captured on TV talking to Flavio, which didn't go down too well <laughs> on the world feed. Um, and I, um, the, the first project I had was, uh, apart from the commercial financial analysis of the sport and the repercussions from Hungary of um, Sky becoming the exclusive pay TV operator, <laughs> with uh, some huge issues. Um, the other issue for the teams was that the cost of um, infrastructure at flyaway races was being levied upon them by the circuit promoters to try and recoup up from the promoters some of the costs that they were paying Bernie for circuit fees, if that makes sense. Yep. So at, at flyaways, you need chairs, you need fridges, you need you, you know your hospitality it needs to be decked out, you need forklifts, you need everything. And these circuits were all paying Bernie such a lot of money. And Bernie was essentially saying, we'll make it back from the teams. So one of the first projects I had was write to um, to Ron Walker and Bernie and say, can we have a meeting in Singapore to address this? And then you can make representations and we will help you promote. Because Bernie doesn't have a marketing department. We know you want to yeah. sell tickets. So we'll help you promote. And at the end of the meeting, I already talked to you about the meeting. The meeting wasn't particularly uh, interesting other than Ron Walker said when Venus Williams and Serena come to the Australian um, tennis open, they go on the beach in their bras. So why can't the drivers be a bit more forthcoming when they get off long-haul flights? Oh. Which was, you know, <laughs> bless Ron, he's not alive anymore. But Bernie took me aside and he said, and he, and he did that funny handshake, you know, when your hands wow. sort of interlock. Awkward. Very awkward. And he took me aside and he goes, you're the new kid in the block here. I'll show you how things aren't done here. Ooh. Ooh. Firing, firing shots. Yeah. Fired. That is a threat. Oh, Bernie. He's a, sc- he's a scary little man, isn't he? He's a scary... I know. 
And he, and he, you know, you ask about my relationship. He made my life really difficult. For imagine. example, he wouldn't give me, he wouldn't give me a season's pass, a red pass. Yeah. He put me on a race. He put me on a race by race pass. And initially, I always had to pick it up at accreditation. And then eventually, they managed to allow me to pick it up at a race. So the race, I could pick up the next week's yeah. pass and so on. So he made my life really difficult. And he Political like mind to, games. Ah, oh, totally, totally. He didn't, he didn't like to communicate with me as well. And he would always say to Martin, I'm talking to you as team principal McLaren, not as um, the head of the union. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can totally picture it. How much, were, how much were host cities paying for races at that point? Did, do you have that kind of intel? No, but, well, no. I mean, but it's it's quite evident that if you were to average out $20, $30 million uh, a year or a race is, is what promoters have often been paying. But yeah. you know that this but you know that the state backed circuits are obviously paying a lot more. Like it's talking about Russia being in the 40, 50 million. And you know, you've got um special deals for some of them. Monaco maybe don't pay anything, but you know, Abu Dhabi and Bahrain and those that are back to this, the um, state paid, paid a lot of money. Yeah. But it wasn't so much them. Uh, I mean, yes, they were levying costs, but it was more like the Australian Grand Prix. And, you know, even when you went to Austin and, and in Europe, particularly the private circuits, you know, where on, their only revenue stream was really on ticket sales. Maybe some had a bit of hospitality they could sell, but, you know, the majority of sponsorship, like title sponsorship would be sold by Bernie mm. or sold by a circuit. They got a bit of commission. Absolutely. Well, revenue stream to recoup it. Yeah. I mean, this is something that a lot of people won't, won't know or, or won't understand that, you know, just because you're racing at Silverstone and you're, you are Silverstone doesn't mean you get the money at Silverstone because mm. when Bernie rolls in, he takes that paddock. That's his and he can sell the areas around it for as much money as he wants. You know, if there's a if there's a bridge over the track uh, at a uh, at a racetrack, there's a bridge over it where you could put people in to view the race. Bernie's going to sell that. That's not going to be the the uh, the track. Um, it's Absolutely. it's amazing what what he owns. So come on then, what what juice have you got? Have you got any gossip for us? <laughs> what 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 are the stories that would uh, raise an eyebrow? Uh, well, I mean, there's a few. I mean, like being pragmatic, I, I tried to grow the sport, and I had a really good. Uh, idea. I say so myself that I took to the teams and said, "Look, the the circuit of the Americas race is coming on. I think like, 2013 was that the first um, U.S. Grand Prix. Ooh, I think Harry, you're the, probably, you're the I think it probably was. Yeah, I, I'd I say it was 2013. And I said, "Look, they, they've done a re- you've done a re- you've done a crap job in America. Let's look at Indianapolis. You've done a really bad yeah. job. You've got to win some hearts and minds. And this circuit needs to sell tickets and." You know, where is the national media? And I spoke to the Austin circuit and we agreed the national media is going to, or the international media is going to be in New York. So I said, well, look, we've got this opportunity after Montreal where we've got a gap before the next race. So why don't we do like a fans forum, which was, you talk about Silverstone and the circuit being owned by Bernie. I did fans forums away from the circuit so I could live stream yeah. and get the drive there and engage them. Why don't we do like a big fan fest in Times Square? And we'll get all the teams to participate and we'll get Pirelli to pit stop practice and we'll have a stage with the drivers. And Circuit America said, yep, we'll underwrite it because we need to sell tickets. Um, I got the teams to buy into it. We got private planes booked for drivers to come down. We had teams going out to their partners to sell it. And I remember vividly saying to the team principals that are meeting at a race, at what point do we tell Bernie about this? And the answer was the point of no return. Oh, oh God. It's making, um, making me nervous. And, uh, and you, 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 you're going to guess what happens. But a few weeks later, and I, I remember this, I'm walking out. I've seen Andrew Denford from F1 in schools, and I'm walking out, and I get a call. Or no, I'm walking in, actually. And Martin phones me, 
And he says, will you call Bernie and tell him about the uh, the New York activation and tell him Ferrari's involved and the circuit back, et cetera, et cetera. So to cut a long story short, uh, I think phone Bernie, he doesn't answer, or he phones me back two minutes later. And it was one of the few phone calls I actually had with Bernie. And uh, I tell him all about it. I put a really positive spin on it. And I think within 24 hours, I get a message from the Circuit of the Americas. We've been advised not to do this. God. It's and mafia. Got, and, you know, they wanted to do it. And they knew it made sense. Yeah. But as a new circuit, they thought, well, if we acquiesce to Bernie, you know, it's like scratched back. And the other words, back could be scratched. That it would benefit them. And that was the president, Bobby, I think, had relayed that to his team that I was dealing with. I can't, I can't understand that at all. How? Like, it's, uh, Bernie it's wants to always, Bernie always had, uh, he always had something behind yeah. uh, the reason. And the only one I can interpret is that at the other time, there was the, um, do you remember, the, was it the Port of America? So it was the New York, Jersey, New Jersey. Yes. Um, yeah, with them. And that, I was talking never, to them. Never saw the light guys. of day. They never saw like that, and they were great guys. And I said to them, "Look, we're having this race. Why don't we merge forces? Like, you might have a race. You don't know what's going to happen, but they've got a race. So why can't we all merge forces?" And they were quite um, Humpty Wheeler, I think was the guy's name. They were like quite positive, but I think Bernie was trying to extract cash from them. And I think Bernie felt, and this is me surmising, but I think Bernie felt by having that on their doorstep that they'd be pissed off. But that. I'll tell you who was more annoyed, all the teams that had invested, all the drivers. And what we ended up doing was um, a few of our drivers, Paul DeResta, you'd be pleased to hear. And yes. um, I think Checo, Alexander Rossi, we all went down a private plane and did a fans forum in um, in MoMA, in, uh, in the theatre there. I think it was MoMA in the theatre yeah. there. Uh, and it was really, it was quite sad because, you know, you say juicy story. It's not really a juicy story. It's an interesting story that not many people know about, but it could have been. But it, it highlights the, the the what we all now sort of see so clearly is that how poorly Formula One was being run in terms of you know you said earlier, Bernie did have a didn't have a marketing department. He didn't have so you were essentially doing that and coming up with these incredible ideas that all the teams were behind, all the drivers were up for, and would have would have put Formula One you know on the map more so in America, but you know even just online and things like that as that's growing as well. So when you look at what you were doing then, and then obviously, you know, being out of Formula One now, looking from the outside in and seeing how much that has changed with obviously Chase Carey coming in, Liberty Media, and they're being transformed across, you know, Formula One YouTube is a completely amazing thing compared to what it was five years ago or even two years ago, I, I could hasten to add. How do you see it now? Do you think that what Liberty have done has surely been way better than what Bernie could have ever done. Yes, I, I think it's hard to argue. Mm. Um, whether they've achieved everything they want to achieve, I think, is is probably a more pertinent question. But look, they've done some great stuff to uh, engage the audience. They've done the, the fan fest and the city centres. Mm. The Netflix drive to survive is great. Brilliant. They've done esports. But I, I don't know what you guys say. I think the, the problem that they've got is they still have this ageing audience that they've got to try and accommodate the younger demographic. Like the esports, I mean, I'm involved in esports, so I can say this, that F1 esports isn't a true esport. And, and you know that, Harry, having been involved in one of my events, Fortnite. Uh, and you, you only need to look at the viewers on a monthly basis for Fortnite, League of Legends. Oh, it blows motorsport out of the water, yeah. Absolutely, it does. Yeah. But I think, and I'm, I'm digressing, and we can come back in a second if you don't mind to the original question, but I think they're missing a trick with F1 esports because instead of, pandering to replicate the traditional um, on, 
on-track content, why not create something completely different? I know Codemasters would do it. Why not like make the whole race around you've got to pit and change tires and why not even just throw in things like refueling and, and just make it interesting and, and throw in that jeopardy then you know running around a track 20 odd times and and instead of being and i feel they really have just engaged the, the, the probably the formula one fan they mm. haven't really and i would say this to the premier league as well as i'm not just coming down with a, a hammer on, on f1 i think the premier league as well all they've probably done is engage people playing fifa and that support the clubs they haven't really gone to true esports fans if that makes sense yeah yeah it makes sense do you think even with the um that i completely agree with you actually but do you think even with the lot since march basically and lockdown everything like that obviously esports has exploded even more so do you still think formula one and the premier league is like haven't quite capitalized on it because i mean i think across the broad across the board there was a rise in in people who were watching esports but do you think that was enough and do you think that can be sustained well, interesting. Uh, was it enough? Look, I think the I don't think the Premier League did enough, um, mm. and I think there were too many different pockets. It was quite disparate, wasn't it? It was like some of the EA ambassadors did a bit, and then you had the E Premier League, and then you had FIFA doing so. I think it was all quite disparate. Mm. I think Formula One did a lot, and will do a lot more. Um, and you know, you can see they're bringing in brands, and, and it's a really good campaign. But I just still feel that it's lacking something. But the only reason all these sports went to esports was because they had no sports content, yeah. traditional sports content. I mean, let's be honest. But now they've realized that actually probably a lot of those fans may not come back to watching linear broadcast content. So they're going to have to work out how to continue to engage this demographic. And yeah. it's a challenge because what? you guys know yourselves that what the, the esports demographic is like and what they like and how they consume content. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's an interesting one with esports because while Formula One has their esports championship, they're not alone. There are others doing it extremely well. When you look at the likes of the race who have had huge success out of their esports um, offering, which has included F1 drivers, new and old, um, and they've done it in a slightly different way. And some would argue argue that they've done it better some would argue they've done it worse i'd be interested to get your take on what you think the coverage of formula one is like and whether that is good enough to attract this younger audience because we spend obviously a lot of time on social media and we see the likes of crofty who has been on this show and we're fans of crofty he gets a bit of a panning on twitter like people are like he's he makes mistakes he's out of date we need someone we need alex jacks we want someone younger um what's your take on the whole coverage is it is it going down the right route for tv well, I mean, I'm, I'm biased, and I like Crofty as well. He's a good mate, but I think that I, you have to go back to basics. Like the race format for me is just too long. Like we've spoke again. Like how? What was it? If we talk about esports fan or the demographic of Gen Z, we know how they consume content, and they do not sit and watch for two a hours. Yeah. Race. And that's what I don't get is why don't they start to really come up with some solid ideas around the format? Because actually. If you look at the demographic, a lot of, and the people who are panning um, Rachel or Crofty or whoever it is, they probably are harking back to the days of following Prost and Manso and, and Senna, or they're just pure purists that you know they hate Formula E because it's electric and they, they had to change their battery. So they actually are just very set in their ways, but they're not going to be around forever. So how do you embrace that new, let's call it new demographics, just for simplicity? And I really think it comes down to the format. Um, I don't know whether it's reverse grids, whether it's refueling, which um, I had a little spat with Will Buxton about it, actually. And he's like, refueling your foot. I was on the Sky Sports F1 
midweek report ones and I said I was just refueling just because I thought it would spice things up. And he's like, full, and then actually it started to get discussed um, yeah. in sporting meetings by the teams. It's quite funny. I was like, ha ha, I knew I knew something. Yeah. Yeah. Touched a um, nerve. But, but it's... I think like the format, why not do qualifying in the race in the same day? Why not shorten the race slightly? Yeah. I think there's yeah, and less, then less practice sessions. The trouble is yeah. you're you're dealing with such a traditional sport still. You know, it's still very much, you know, Ferrari rule the roost, the big teams make all the decisions, photo or no photo and it's tough and, and to get someone like Ferrari who you bend, you change the rules too much they'll just go oh we'll leave you know yeah. F1 needs to um, needs to crack TikTok that's how you get James yeah. in yeah. that is how you do it yeah, do some good are you on there Harry Junior dancing I'll tell you what I did sign up I did one video and I didn't go, I didn't go viral so I deleted yeah. it absolutely yeah. um, but I am I am on it I have an account and it's mad how you can just suddenly because you know they're, they're not long videos they're no. just really short they're funny they're varied and you get hooked you just, on it rolling and before you know it embarrassingly a lot of time has gone by but if you know that's another element i think formula one could add in to capture that but then you do tiktok then you've got to do trailer and then you just got to keep going don't you and you've got to work out where to put your resource but i agree but i think from a broadcast perspective Mm. it's going to be interesting um that the sky money is going to run out at some point isn't it um and is ott the future i don't personally think ott is the future for formula one yet partly because of the, the the fan demographic that we just spoke about. Mm. But I think um, some of the content that Sky create is fantastic and, and it, it should be rightly be acclaimed. But um, you know, how do you, when it's behind the paywall, it's a challenge for a lot of people still, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, I, in, in a way, we're very lucky. And we discussed it with Crofty when, when we had him on the show that, you know, how lucky are we to have a dedicated channel for the sport that we love? Um, you know, yeah. m- most sports don't have that. Now, listen, for, for those that don't know, um, just explain to us the Concord Agreement and what that means to the sport. The Concord Agreement traditionally has been a tripartite agreement between the FIA as a governing body the commercial rights holder form or Liberty or Formula One group, whatever you want to call them now, who has got the commercial rights on a license basis from the FIA and then the teams. And essentially it's been the document that has contracted the teams to race. It's set out the terms of which they enter and it's had all the, um, the they call it, I think, the stability regulations and the financial provisions, etc. And that's what's just been renewed. When I was there and came in in 2011, um, we started to discuss the renewal for 2012, and actually, what happened was it wasn't a Concord agreement that was signed. It was um, it was bilateral agreements. Bernie, in his true divide and conquer style, went and picked off Ferrari and Red Bull with a shed load of cash, with their own agreements and own special deals, which um, Liberty have obviously um, rolled back from. And then the rest of them just fell like dominoes. But that's what it is. It's a document that binds the, mm. the teams to participate and sets out how much money they'll get and the rules and regs and etc. When you were there, obviously that time period was when we had three new Formula One teams. We had obviously uh, the Team Lotus and uh, uh, Virgin Racing and HRT. I think that's what they were in 2011. Yeah, it became Mauritius. Exactly, yeah. So they evolved over those years. But signing the Concord Agreement for those teams as well, <laughs> obviously they made, I think uh, it was, it was Mauritius who lasted the longest, wasn't it, with coming and turning into Manor. But, you know, did Bernie... Did he care about them? Because if no. he's picking off Red Bull and Ferrari with their own packages, surely if he could have afforded done, if he could afford to do that, you could have 
split that money evenly, supported those three new teams. Nah. And, and they might even still be here today with that agreement because, more, in my opinion, more teams, more drivers, it's more interesting he, racing. He didn't give a shit. I mean, if you ever talk to Graham Loudon uh, from Manor and Marussia, mm. he, he will always show you what he was promised and it never materialised uh. and it made life very difficult. No, Bernie didn't care about the small teams. They didn't add much value. But actually, the big teams cared about the small teams because if, <laughs> if the big teams were having a bad race weekend, the more cars on track made them look less bad. Yeah. But, um, you know, financially, the, the disparity in the revenue distribution was horrendous. I mean, I used to... I used to show what the distribution at the Premier League was. It was like one and a half to one. And there was, you only got more money on the basis. It was all transparent, those special deals, but you only got more money on the basis of where you finish and how often you were in TV, etc. And then, you know, Ferrari and Red Bull and the others were negotiating special deals. And then if you weren't in the the, the circle of trust or you, you hadn't been in the sport long enough, you only pick up 10 million bucks yeah. a year. And Bernie was recouping a lot of that on freight costs anyway, so they never had a chance. Really. It, it makes you wonder why the likes of um, Man or Marussia, as they were back then, even bother coming into it because they know year one or two or three, they're probably going to come last, get that ten million quid, which isn't going to even turn the lights on at the factory. You know what? What it's just—it's a quick false way. False promises. To, it's false promises. But it, I, mean, I think I mentioned this once before, Harry, on a podcast. I'm not sure, but um, I used to know Graham Loudon quite well, and um, through days working with some of the drivers at Manor and and Marusha, and um, I think it was him actually that told me that Bernie referred to them as the gypsies of the paddock, and he, like you say, he just didn't care. Um, wow. No interest in helping them financially whatsoever. And, uh, you know, Pasquale, his lieutenant, uh, uh, you probably know Pasquale. Yeah. I've got a story about Pasquale. Oh, go on. But, um, you know, he made their life very difficult. You know, you must have heard about the white line and if the, your, your motorhome was a little bit over the white line and, you know, what they did with passes and things like that, it made it very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, not a way to grow a sport in reality. No. God, that's that elitism at its finest. What, really, what, have it? you, what have you got on Pasquale? No, so I remember one race weekend in uh, Suzuka and there was this talk of, um, it was about garage sizes in Austin and the garages weren't going to be big enough and how were they going to allocate? And as teams, we were having this discussion where what was fair. And Pasquale got wind of the fact that I was saying the teams were going to boycott the Austin Grand Prix. Now, a journalist had come up to me and said, I've heard the teams are going to boycott the Austin Grand Prix. And I went, well, that's ridiculous because I'm working with the Austin Grand Prix, or I had, I, think I had been working with the Austin Grand Prix to put on the New York event. So that one-on-one one certainly doesn't add up to two. And um, I come, we, have a, we have a team meeting in Suzuka. There's a picture, there's a great picture of us all in, in, um, Ren, in Reynolds building with um, plant pots trying to hide us. And it was a big discussion around whatever was going on. And at the end, um, two of the team principals come up to me and went, you're in big shit. <laughs> Pasquale has told us that he's going to take away your pass because you're saying the teams are going to boycott the US Grand Prix. And I'm like, oh, well, if I've got my bosses coming up to me saying this, I'm in real trouble. How am I going to rectify this? So I worked out with McLaren. So I went down and I spoke with Matt Bishop and then Matt, you know, this is nonsense. I told him, he said, well, this is what I do. So I wrote to Pasquale and said, this is nonsense. Like, I just don't know where you got it. And I set out some facts and said, can I come and see you? So um, 
I lock up uh, the, the parrot and I find him and go and sit in his office and like tip Trisha Pasquale, makes you sit there for 15 minutes while he's doing other things and then sort of just talks at you. And I think it's all sorted. And um, I get an email on race day from Martin saying, your campaign for equal garage access um, is admirable, but it hasn't gone down well. And um, basically your pass is being revoked oh. by uh, from McLaren is being punished with the smallest garage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, this is just ridiculous. So uh, I got back. You know, I, I, I traditionally had really crappy race weekends. Uh, I was almost like the loner and everything I was doing would never come off because the teams didn't have any bottle because Bernie has so much leverage. And I got back to London and I wrote an email and I, I copied in Bernie and I just again set out the facts and said, this is just nonsense for X, Y, and Z reasons. And he, uh, and Pasquale just wrote back and said, uh, something along the lines of it's okay now. He, or he didn't ever say sorry about the misunderstanding. It, it was just like, he, he, saw, he rode back oh, slightly. Yeah. I've been quite pragmatic, but I mean, it's just absolute nonsense. There was just so many churlish games that were played in the paddock. I remember the first time I went to see him um, about my past, he liked my raincoat and his big super dry raincoat on. And he's like, oh, I like this. And he kept going like that. And someone whose name will remain, uh, I will not reveal, said he was saying, get my raincoat and he'll sort you out. And it was just like, I was not a way to operate. So many mind games and, and, and the politics. It's just crazy. So so you were, so Fighter was for three years. Is that right? Is that how long you were in Formula yeah, 1? Yeah, I was there for three years. And, three years. and, as, and as much as, you know, it was character building, I was a walking dartboard in the paddock. There were some, I bet. Good, there were some good wins. Some other, I've got funny stories as well is, you know, the, the, the juicy gossip. <laughs> would you? Oh, go on. Would, would you? Would, would you go back though? Like, if they said, "Look, it's different now. It's liberty. You know, but it's, it's a bit more relaxed." Would you go back? Yeah, I would because I think I could help them. I actually went. I'll tell you now. When um, when Bratches started, um, I, I don't. Do you remember when Chase and, and Sean started? They were in this little office somewhere in yeah. the middle of London, and yeah. they didn't have a team around them. And I got in to see Bratches. And I said, I sent him my CV and I said, do you want to hire me basically? Because I think I can help you. And he'd never heard of Fota. Oh. I was like, oh God, oh. right. <laughs> and he'd hired his management team already. Uh, uh. So that was the time. And I spoke to some of the team principals and they would have, they would have endorsed me working for them because I think I could have helped them. Mm. But now, yeah, I think I could help them. I, I genuinely think I could help them. I don't think they surrounded themselves enough with motorsport people as well. Um, well, well, what do you think with um, obviously the new appointment of uh, Chase Carey leaving and Stefano Domenicali coming in? Obviously, he's you know Mr. Ferrari. How, how what are your thoughts on that? I think he's a solid appointment. I, I think you only say he's Mr. Ferrari because you, you remember him being a team principal for however many years. Yeah, but you know he was at Audi, he was at Lamborghini. Of course, I think he's a, he's an appointment that's gone down very well. He never mm. upset people. Um, I don't know where the skill set for him will, um, you know, most be utilised. Like, I, I can't imagine he's been around a broadcasting contract, for example. Mm. I, I, I have no doubt he can do a commercial deal. And I have no doubt you will him out and he will schmooze the wheels off somebody uh, to get a deal done. And he can manage teams and he understands the technical aspects and, you know, he understands the commercial aspects. So it'd be quite interesting to see, you know, how he beefs up his team. I mean, he's got a lot of good people there already, but... Does he bring in some people that know a bit more about F1 than maybe are already there? Does yeah. he beat up certain elements? It'd be interesting to see who he surrounds himself with, but I don't worry about the 
the, the Ferrari bias that's been mentioned. And I don't think the teams do either. No, I think, as you rightly say, he's got enough experience outside of Ferrari to warrant the, the non-bias. I think that's probably just um, hopefully a bit of fun that people are having. But leaving Formula One, how was that? What, what Did you have something lined up straight away? Because obviously you, you moved to Formula E, but was there a, a direct uh, crossover or what, what happened in after Formula One? Well, I had to dissolve the association. It became apparent that the teams had no um, spine. Uh, Bernie had too much political leverage. You know, he's... I could never have estimated just how much leverage he had, both from a financial perspective and just passes. And, um, you know, Teams were unable to pay the membership, which would have allowed me to continue to, to run the organization. Mm. So we set a deadline on dissolving so that I could um, run the association down as required. And, you know, once you've had great jobs at Premier League and F1, it's like, what do you do next? And you have a little look around in the best world of the world. Swimming wasn't that enticing. Um, you know, great role for some people. It just wasn't enticing for me. It wouldn't have excited me to get out of bed to mm. run a swimming organization. So I set up my own agency and I sort of positioned it as a boutique little sports agency that could address commercial policy and fan engagement on the basis of all the fan forums I'd done in F1, the commercial experience and helping broker deals. And then I just put policy in there because I'd done so much policy work in my previous role at the Premier League. And I ended up just doing a, a little bit of everything. In all honesty, I represented an endurance athlete. I brokered a few deals. Um, I did a fans forum. Uh, went back to the Circuit of the Americas and we did a fans forum. And you know, that went really well. Mm. And uh, formally, he approached me about helping the teams there. And actually, the governing board, like the, the rights owner, was very uh, much behind my appointment. They actually recommended me to the teams. And then there was teams that knew of me from F1. And it was meant to be sort of a day a week almost black consultancy, but um, ended up um, being involved for most of the first season, actually, in Formula E, but on a part-time basis. So they did; they had no budget, like, in Formula One. I went to a few races. I went to, uh, first race I went to was Putrajaya, and I went to um, Battersea and a couple of others. Um, but the, you could see that the, the atmosphere between the Formula E teams and the Formula E rights owner was far more conciliatory. And, yeah, there were, we had a lot of issues. Don't get me wrong. And, and I think the the teams and the FIA were very surprised about just how much we put writing, but actually what they had to do was just prioritise. Mm. So, uh, you know, I did a lot. I did a few um, bits and pieces um, before I, and at the same time as I got involved in Formula E. What did you think of Formula E when it first came about? I liked the concept. I liked the people involved. I wasn't sure about the product. But um, I, I garnered very quickly a, a deep respect for the pro- project and the product at the same time. And what they were trying to do from an electric sustainability point of view, I could see the relevance in respect of, you know, maybe they were a little bit early, but I, I liked what they were doing from, ele- from electric because that's where the manufacturers were mm-hmm. going to be. And you've seen that you know, with Audi. Yeah. And, and, and also from a fan engagement point of view, I really liked they were pushing the boat. I know the purists hated the fan boost and you know, ridiculed the cars changing battery, but that's technology and it just evolves. But I really enjoyed um, the, the fan engagement element. And that's why when I worked in um, sports tech for three years, we went back to Formula E and used them as a guinea pig because they wanted to innovate and be yeah. the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. Do you think well, um, Do you think Formula One, uh, they're obviously very different sports and we shouldn't compare Formula One with Formula E 
and and I'm not doing that. But knowing that Formula E have this exclusivity on single seater electric racing, and there's other forms of racing coming through, like Extreme E, which is going to be mega. We can't wait for that. Um, and and all these sort of electric uprising, this boat series that Alejandro launched yeah. recently. Really, oh, really it looks cool. so cool. It looks amazing. But do you think Formula One has a place? Will it become obsolete? Is there is there a place for it in 20, 30 years time? That's so interesting. I was going to, I didn't know which way you were going. And if you hadn't asked me that, I was going to say, where do you see it? I think the problem, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. I think part of the problem with Formula One is like, what is the DNA of Formula One? If you look at what Liberty have done, where they probably least done as well as they expected is in selling sponsorship. And I come back to the fact that it's probably because people don't know what the sport stands for. Um, you know, then they've had arguments on cost control and teams quitting, and you know that's all now being settled. The tech regs are settled. I think actually you'll probably see a bigger uplift in sponsorship. But it comes back to what does Formula One stand for? Is it the pinnacle of motorsport, which is a great phrase, but what does it really mean? Because actually NASCAR or IndyCar or somebody else could probably argue that that's what their role in is to um, to be. Um, but I cannot see in 20, 30 years that the combustion engine is still going to be relevant. Like you're not going to have. Um, petrol cars anymore are you but you can't have another um, as you say exclusive electric series so is there some sort of hybrid like Formula 1 hasn't been slow adapting technology that is relevant to the road car industry like things like cars and or technology that can be um, utilised in the wider industry you know you look at Williams advanced mm-hmm. um, engineering and McLaren applied technology yeah. things, a lot of their learnings are transferable but I'm struggling to see where Formula 1 is going to be in 30 years and um, is it going to be a hybrid? Is it, of you know, there's an electric element and there is another element? I don't know what it is. I genuinely don't know what it is. I don't know if you guys have a view. But I mean, I, I don't know. I, my, my, I, I, I'm not sure. I don't think... I. It's so hard to imagine a world without Formula One, first of all. It won't ever go fully electric or it won't do for at least a quarter of a century or so. Um, the hybrid model works, but... And, you know, decarbonisation and, you know, the environment and sustainability and all this sort of stuff, we're, we're going to need things like diesel power for a long time yet. It's not going anywhere yet. You know, you can't get rid of it overnight. Combustion engines, they're not going to be on the road. But you, there isn't still, I'm probably a bit old school, I'm still in that kind of Formula One camp of you can't beat an engine and it's so hard to imagine not having it and whether it becomes a sort of legacy series where you know they they have an exception for formula 1 mm. because it's so powerful and it will just be this enduring hybrid um race series that's almost historical in the way it's run you know in 20 30 40 years time i don't know but I, and i don't think anybody knows i don't think formula 1 knows but tim but tim as a manufacturer are you going to fund a no. series that's going to develop that no. so it's going to so then you're no. going to need you're going to need your gypsy teams aren't you to yeah. use Van Beren's expression yeah. of russia it'll you're going to yeah. need your privateers it'll be the privateers thing is, though yeah. when you look at ele- the electric world and the electric racing world that is brilliant for the now and that is doing incredible things as you said all the manufacturers have gone to Formula E all of a sudden. Look how fast it has grown since 2014. Uh, it, it's, it's almost unrecognisable since amazing. the first season. It's insane. But is that is electric truly the future? Because we talk a lot about hydrogen yeah. and hydrogen-powered cars and how we have that. it's not quite right. I don't think it's quite 
there yet. But is that where we're eventually heading? Is that where Formula E will become Formula Hydrogen and then Formula One can become Formula E? God, is that where we're going? Jesus. Exactly. I, 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 God, I, I didn't realize I needed a chemistry. I know. This is, <laughs> Harry, 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 I'm, I'm getting impressed with our knowledge here. This is, this no, is, no, this is good so... stuff. Oh, well, dear. I, well, I mean, I'm not like, expecting you to know the answer to that, but... <laughs> no, but I, I, I thought where you were going was, you know, Formula E has grown so much, but actually what it's still struggling to do is captivate the eyeballs that Formula One is captivating. That is very I true. Think, I think that's actually quite interesting. Well, why are people not embracing Formula E? Like, sponsors are embracing it. You've seen Hugo Boss leave yeah. Formula One. You've seen UBS leave. You've seen Heineken Park in both camps. They're double parking. But actually... I always like to do that compare and contrast. Um, and I haven't done it today on the, um, the Twitter and Instagram followers for Formula One and Formula E. And Formula E arguably creates better content that actually gets copied often by Formula One. But mm. it's not engaging the, the mass, is it, really, no. just yet? Yeah, no. that's... It's not. Interesting. And, it's, and, and I'm one of those. Like, I think Harry's probably more engaged ah. with it than I am. Um, I, I've taken a long time to get into Formula E and I still, to this day, haven't watched a full race through because I can't. I, ca- I, cannot, really? I can't get through a full race still. I don't know what it is. I think it, it's something to do with the street circuits and their little, tiny little tracks and bouncing around and I, I, the noise maybe. I still think they should make them sound like Tron or Star Wars. But it, it just isn't captivating me and I can't put my finger on why. I wonder if I hadn't been involved with Formula E, whether I'd watch it. Yeah. Really? I think that, that helps. That Having that vested interest helps. Because, you know, even Formula One, I used to manage some racing drivers. One of them was an F1 driver. And as soon as he was in it, I was like hooked, like totally hooked. And then he went across to IndyCar and I was addicted to IndyCar. Mm. I think if you've got that one foot in it, it does make a big difference. See, I started watching Formula E this first season and I immediately loved it. It was something new, completely different. I loved the fact that the cars could be so close together and could, there could be a, almost a touring car element to it in but terms also, of the argy-bargy of it. But you're very, you don't get that in Formula 1. But you're young. You're really young. You're, you're 22 years old. I'm 39. How old are you, Ollie? 41. 41. It, uh, it does... I don't. I do think. That well, that, that's the difference, isn't it? I suppose I, I I'm f- technically a Gen. I think I am technically a Gen yeah. Z. I think I Gen fall Z, into yeah, Gen Z. Z. So, so, but there. But I also see, you know, the the fact. I, for some reason, it's not it's not engaging so well on on you know their on their viewership. But I think it's done better this season. The fact they've managed to get it on on BBC. Uh, Yes, it's on the red button, but they've managed. They had a couple of races on BBC Two, which I think did okay. And I think they're trying. You know, ITV didn't really give it the the time and space it needed. Channel Five was an absolute disaster. I think they broadcast it from a broom cupboard at one point. Horrific. <laughs> so you know, now I feel like now that they're getting it back on track, and we'll see what they have planned for next year. Yeah. But uh, I, think I feel like the manufacturers coming in like it's going to change it a lot. But Porsche and Mercedes being there now, and and Audi, <laughs> big my this is this is a year I suspect you'll see a huge marketing spend because they've all yeah. got big electric car products to sell. Mm. Um, so hopefully that will help grow the support. Completely. Well, we talked so much about Formula E. God, we've, we've talked about it all day. But um, let's move away from motorsport just for a minute, shockingly, on the Motormouth <gasps> podcast. But let's talk about what you're up to now and, and London United. So that's your current sort of venture, eSports. Talk to us about what it is, why you set it up and, and where you're at at the moment. Yeah, I mean, when I when I came out of Virtually Live, so Virtually Live um, was a, a tech company. We did VR and produced Ghost Racing, which allowed you to race in real time um, against Formula E drivers. I looked again what to do, and I had some experience of esports from the last 
three years. And I went to Wembley Arena one Friday afternoon and it was sold out. It was Counter-Strike. Never seen again in my life, but realized that this was the future. So I was like, do you go work for someone? Do you set up in your own? And essentially, we decided that there was a gap in the market for a, a city-based, content-based esports organization that could provide that path to pro, but nurture, develop, and educate, and align with health and nutrition and have an element of social purpose. And in reality, what that meant was I put you on events in Lewisham Shopping Centre to form an Apex team called uh, Hashtag Grime Against Knives. Obviously, obvious why we did that with Grime Artists and Knife Crime Lewisham. Um, doing a, a FIFA esports tryout in, with a charity called Street League, but actually bringing their participants and having a physical five-a-side element. So marrying up gaming and esports. And then what ultimately London United has become as we've um, gone through the last um, six months, is that we sort of turned your organization on its head and said, yes, we were about grassroots path to pro, but actually what we really are is the esports organization that unites with social responsibility. We want to use our platform to address social issues. And what that has meant is, for example, during COVID, we've gone to online events and we have done an event where we've messaged around loneliness and male suicide prevention around FIFA, to find the FIFA gamers, so that was a competition. We've done nutrition and League of Legends. And just two weeks ago, we did United Against Racism, which was a six-hour stream on Twitch with uh, where we partnered with Leighton Orient and Kingston Race Equalities Council, and we had Rocket League and FIFA gamers competing, but in between and interspersed was messaging on anti-racism. We had a filmmaker uh, who had done a short film on racism in football, uh, we had Isaac Chamberlain, a, a boxer, talking about his experience of Paralympia, the triple jumper. And it's very much about using the community uh, and our platform and marrying them up on, on social issues and esports now, which I think is something different, but is very relevant. <clears throat> That's excellent. Well, congratulations on, on all of that. It sounds very, very impressive. And listen, we could talk to you um, for hours. We, we may have to have another episode just to go deeper and deeper into Formula One and Formula E because there's some fascinating th- topics to discuss. Um, but listen, we've got um, three questions which we ask all of our guests uh, at the end of the podcast, and they always throw up interesting and different answers. Um, Harry, do you want to kick off with the first one? Absolutely. So, Ollie, what's got you excited at the moment? Rangers playing Galatasaray in the Europa League. <laughs> <laughs> Go Rangers. Uh, it's, uh, wait, Rangers. Now that's, uh, who's Gerard in charge of? Rangers? Or yeah, Rangers. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah okay. now, so that, that, that would be my, that'd be, that'd be uh, one of my answers. Um, the other, the other one is obviously, I just, I, I'm excited to be in esports. I just think it is this growth industry that I, I'm hoping I've got yeah. into at the right time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if not doing what you're doing, what would you be doing? I'd be running a sports organization, a football club, or a governing body. Very nice. Mary, nice. over to you. Okay. For the final, yeah, final question. Yeah, that's going to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they would have done. Um, final question. What are you scared of? Snakes. Yeah. Nice. Good. Solid answer. So that. Good. Although, that. although, this is really weird. I am scared of snakes, and my wife always laughs at this. But when I um, travelled in uh, 2000, uh, 2001, I went to Bolivia. I was in the jungle, and there's a picture of me with a big python holding a python. Oh, and I'm just scared. I'm scared of snakes. Oh, you madman. Oh, Why would you horrific. do that? So that you know, I once went to a snake birthday party when what? I was like a kid and I had no idea. Uh, what yeah. a terrible, terrible idea for a party. Yeah. A snake party. Absolutely not. Yet we all went. 
mad. Yeah, yeah. Go and hold a snake. Not a lot of fun. Mm-mm. No, good answer. Well, listen, um, Ollie, it's been fascinating talking to you. Um, as I said, we must do more because there's so much stuff to discuss. Unfortunately, we've nearly hit the hour mark, so we're running out of time. But listen, let's get together when all this COVID nonsense is out the way um, and, and choose some more fat. But in the meantime, Ollie, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Speak soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore Instagram at Motormouth underscore official and on Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile and interact with others and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review. And until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth podcast.